You awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, uh, my name is Brian. And hey, I'm Murdoch. What's up? We are here to discuss and set straight the rumor and innuendo around your favorite bands and your favorite songs. And a few episodes back, we spent a little time talking about Minute Work and a lawsuit they were forced to face. Oh, yeah. This lawsuit, if you remember, 30 years after the song in question came out. And so we were talking about, in that episode, you and I, uh, how terrifying that would be. You know, you create something, and people like it, and you live your life for three freaking decades. Like, think how much you do in three decades. Only to have someone accuse you of stealing and then take you for a, a million dollars. Or actually, in this case, yeah. the court costs were like $4 million. Yeah, to put this in perspective for everyone, imagine if some guy came out of the woodwork and sued um, all of Metallica, Q Prime Management, Electra record, Records... And he had a demo of him going down, 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 Say your prayers, do one. Even better. All of a sudden, and Metallica's sunk. What if we found out that 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 was actually an Australian folk song? James Hetfield was riffing. Say your prayers, little one. I wish I could do the Australian accent. I saw a video the other day of somebody who clearly had a. Uh, some type of domesticated kangaroo, but they had a dog. Yeah. And the dog and the kangaroo were running around the yard, like boxing at each other. <laughs> and I thought, how badass would it be if you come over to your buddy's house? You're like, he's got that damn kangaroo. But anyway, so back to the the lawsuit. Well, well I mean, how so that can speaking of speaking of kangaroo boxing, have have you ever been sued? I had someone threaten me with a lawsuit. Like for real? Like you really thought it was going to happen? Um, I wasn't I wasn't confident that it would happen, but I did have someone in writing threaten to sue me. So I actually thought this show was getting sued, and I've I've protected you from this. So oh my gosh, our first we have this com- is this is happening. This is okay. happening. This isn't even, this is not in the notes, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go there because it came up. So there are two versions of our theme song. All right, and there's the newer one that we play sometimes that has the newer movie drops in it, and then there's the older one with the Step Brothers movie drop and some other stuff in it, right? And uh, that one is from this band, Hark the Herald, that happened to have my brother in it, and so I took brother privileges because that band had disbanded, and I started using that song, and so like a year ago, he's like, "Hey man, you should credit that song in when whenever we do, uh, whenever you open the mic." And I said, eh, I don't know. Okay. Like, you're my brother. It's fine. And nobody can find this album. It, it'll be fine. It kept sort of being persistent about it. Every once in a while, he would like bring it up. And then he would like just basically tell me I was being a dick. Like, that was really the thing, right? It wasn't that, like, hey, you should do this. It was like, you're being a dick because you're not doing this. And then when somebody tells me I'm being a dick, I don't want to do it. So I just didn't do it for a long time. Anyway, wow! I just I learned something today about you. Yeah, Brian. don't don't tell me I'm a dick. You never do that. That's why you never see this side of me. Anyway, yeah, no, um, I don't. This was like I don't know, probably three or four months ago, and my wife comes to the door of the office, and she she her face is white, and she's like, "There's a guy out there. He says he has to see you, and I I think he's I think he's gonna serve you papers." And I was like, "What?" And so, like, I don't even know really how that works. I've only seen that in movies where people just run away when they think they're being served. And yeah. I was like, I, I heard, I heard <clears throat> Roger Stone, you know, that guy, the guy that has Richard Nixon's face tattooed on his back. Yeah. Um, I heard him, a, a tape of him on a radio show, and he was being served while he was on being interviewed <laughs> on a radio show. So, so this is almost that good. There's also, listeners to the show don't necessarily know this, but I used to work for an organization that we were sort of ripe for a lawsuit. So, like, in the back of my head, I thought, and I ended up on all the paperwork at the end when we dissolved the business. So I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be somebody coming for me for that. And there's this guy, and he looks like the sleaziest guy who would, like, he's in a suit and his hair slicked back and he's got sunglasses on. I've never seen him before. And he like has a he goes hey are you are you Brian Eichenberg? and I was like what and he's like are you Brian Eichenberg and I said yeah and he goes great you've been served good luck 
And I was like, thanks? Like, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> so he hands me the envelope, and I come back inside, and I'm like, did I really just get served? So I open this thing up, and I start reading through it, and it basically takes me a good three-ish minutes to realize it's my brother fucking with me. And he has, <laughs> he has hired a guy that he knows that I don't know. And my brother and I have a lot of friends in common, so he's found some guy I don't know. He has, he has completely faked paperwork to make it look like Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is legit getting sued. I have it. I'll show it to you. It's back here. Hold on. And he's faked the seal of the state of Kentucky and the whole deal, man. He's gone through all of this stuff to good luck in, in this envelope and he yeah. and the, yeah and the guy goes good luck and i just go well here's what i don't know because i'm the one that's a dick apparently <clears throat> uh he has this guy tape it with his cell phone in his pocket so then this guy comes back to you know prank hq or wherever my brother hangs out and is like showing this on a big video screen to everybody like look how we pranked this guy and the funny part is, my I, my brother said it was so uncomfortable for him to watch watch it, like because I was fully buying it that he just couldn't. He was like, "It's so painful that I can't even show people," and it took all the fun out of it for me. Oh my gosh! Wow. So we'll look we'll look at what he did <clears throat> by making the prank like too too real. Yeah, okay. it was it was well done. It was well executed. It's taken me some time to heal to talk about it publicly. I'm glad that we we I'm didn't actually get sued. Only your brother. I'm glad it was only your brother. <laughs> Me too, man. This whole situation about minute work, right? That's what we're actually supposed to be talking about. Uh, in this lawsuit where they're forced uh, to to deal with it 30 years after. This got me thinking of how this might work in reverse. Like, what are those situations where you create something and people like it, but then it sort of fades away, you actually, like, retire, you mind your own business, and then something happens to push you back into the limelight. And even if it's not, like, in a positive way, per se, at least it's in a way that makes you money, Instead of what happened a minute work, which was a, a way that lost them money, right? So we've sort of seen this. Like, this kind of happened with Journey. We talked about that in the Steve Perry episode, right? TV shows sort of resurrected Don't Stop Believing, And then all of a sudden, these guys got like a second wind in their career. But what I want to talk about today isn't about having an agent who's really good at getting you television placements. This is a story about the people, the masses, the proletariat, taking and remaking and maybe it's not just a story, but it might be the story to explain what weird-ass stuff happens on the internet. Uh, <laughs> this is a story about a meme, about how some internet goofballs invented a phenomenon, they invented a term to describe it, and they forced a red-headed little devil back into the spotlight. This was a big part of my night last night. This song was. A big part of your night last night? Okay, yeah. I need that story. Tell me tell me all of it. Um, well, I'm not going to make it a spoiler for other people, but... There's a it, certain it, television show? Yeah. I have that in the notes at the end. Yeah, so right? So when we talk about how this is still a thing that people do and talk about... I, I do have that in the notes. If we should not say it, we don't have to say it, though. I don't really think it gives yeah. away anything in the plot. Also, I want to let our listeners know that you know I've spent the last 15, 16 months really playing lots of guitar a lot. And so sometimes I, I, you know, I, I realize I just kind of was a, a snot about a lot of cheesy popular music for a, a long time. And so after... Uh, never gonna give you up like was in my weekend i like looked it up and like i learned how to play that song on guitar and and can nail i can nail that with you know at at, at ease you know do you play it like this no but i've heard that one <laughs> i do play it it isn't it isn't E flat. That, so I do play it in, in E flat. 
that's the animal in me. One of these bands who's realized that the best way to get people to listen to their original music on the internet is to make really sort of fun, outlandish covers of other people's songs. So they do a bunch of stuff, but uh, that is one of them. Never going to give you up. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, tell me a little bit about your relationship with Rick Astley in a pop cultural sense. Is there anything there? Um, you know, I, I was I was there when that song first first hit radio. And so I, I was listening to it as a as you know when I was younger. There was a joke in the television show I I think that we're referring to, which I remember as a kid, where um, before people saw the video, people thought that he was a, a black guy. Yeah, you know, yeah, that he yeah, was yeah, a, yeah. A white a white English guy. I was totally going to ask you that right about what you thought the first time you heard that voice. We do have to start with him. I don't know how much you know about him. Do you know a whole lot about his history? It was right around like when the eclipse happened a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Was right when he he got on stage with the Foo the Foo Fighters. Fighters. Uh huh. It was right around the same time, and they're like they introduce him, and he gets the microphone. And he's like, "Come on, you motherfuckers!" <laughs> um, they rock out the song, and it's so good. And because of that, then I started just reading about him because he only had like two hits, and and. Getting see that's Rick sort of a, that's sort of a misnomer, and I, and that we we will we'll break that apart here in a minute. But first, let's start here. I thought he was a teen star. He was twenty one yeah. when this all started, so he was out yeah. of his teens. But yeah. from that video, he just he has that baby face, and he's just sort of it is shocking because when you hear the song, you don't think he's going to look like that. So I, I thought he was actually younger when his career started, but he's twenty one. He was born in February of nineteen sixty six in Lancashire, in Northwest England. He's the fourth kid in the fam. And there's like some drama in his family. His parents separate, but his mom just moves like a street over. One of those weird things we all grew up with, right? We all had that friend. Uh, From a pretty young age, he starts spending his free time doing music. So the first thing he picks up is drums. I mean, everybody needs a drummer. He plays in cover bands all the time. By the time he's 16, he actually drops out of school. Uh, his dad has a job for him to drive a grocery truck. He starts doing that during the day, and then he's playing with this club band at night. Wow. Think about that, man. Rick Ashley's dad was totally down. Uh, Yeah, and Rick never meant to be a singer, so he wanted to be a drummer. At one point, he's in this band with a guy who is playing bass and taking on the vocal duties, and Rick is pretty sure that it's the reason they're not doing better. And so he convinces the guy to let him sing instead. This is an actual quote from Rick that I dug up. Quote, I never wanted to be the front man for a band. I never wanted to be a pop star. I was happy playing drums and letting someone else take over the leading role. If I had been in a band that had a competent lead singer, I might still be a drummer today. (laughs) It's got to hurt to be that guy. (laughs) The guy he's talking about. Yeah. Still burning him. Uh, It's important to understand the context of what happens to Rick Astley. Okay. In a vacuum, 30-plus years later, this whole thing seems weird. So you have to understand what's happening in music at the time. Now, it's 1987 when this song comes out. I'm going to throw a couple of names at you, and I, I just want you to react. And actually, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to throw the names at you. I'm going to play the songs, and I want you to react, all right? Uh, how, about, how about this one? Oh, Samantha Fox, yeah. Yes. Is this all from 87? Tell, no, it's it's from around the time. There is a correlation, I'll tell you in just okay. a minute. Do you, How do you feel about Samantha Fox? I had I had a scandalous... <laughs> I knew it! Huge, I knew it. huge poster of Samantha Fox. Oh my God, I knew in it. My, my room. I, I literally my- wrote this in so I could get you to admit it because I was like I guarantee you Murdoch had so many de- so many dreams about Samantha Fox I'm not gonna deny that I that I didn't I, I, mean, I, I bet that my wife and I haven't had that conversation before I mean this song is called touch me I want your body I mean you know you're what in 86 87 right like you're like 14 I'm 13, 13? I, I'm, oh dear I'm, god I'm 13 dude I'm, I, I'm I, am re- I am ready to rock <laughs> At 13. So uh, my main oh my context, God. because I was not 13 in 1986, 87, uh, is I was at this radio station in the early 2000s, and I worked for this guy who would 
host the the Saturday show. And I, have we talked about it? We've talked about this guy. There was a Saturday night show where they would put club hits from the 80s together, and we called it Supermix 80s. And I had to mix his vo- vocal tracks into like one of those long, like it would come on a CD and it would be literally in 30 minute blocks. And then I would have to drop in his voice. So I'd have to open the whole thing up in editing software and then drop his vocal introductions in between the songs. So I'd have to find the cue on the sheet. Like, you know what I'm talking about, right? This wow. is some radio nerd stuff, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So he would always, he'd be like, and there it is, Samantha Fox, touch me. I want your body on Supermix 80s. Like, he would just puke all over the mic. Like, he wasn't that bad of an air talent, but, like, he would puke on this because it was the 80s, right? It was 80s Supermix. And it was, oh, man. So every time I hear this, that is automatically what I think of. I got another one for you, though, okay? Here's another one. Okay. Oh, yeah. Cruel Summer by Bananarama. So did you know, okay, so this song actually comes out in 83. We talked about this. I was on 278 to Lighthouse Road. Back in May, we were talking about summer songs and beach songs, and we were talking about this song. And did you know that this song wasn't a hit when it came out? Do you know what made it a hit? It wasn't a hit until 84, but it came out in 83. Do you know what made it a hit? It was in a movie. Yeah. Do you know what movie? Um, was it in the, was it in, it was in Karate Kid. Yeah, it was. And, and because, and, and because it, you know, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you subjected your children as an awful, terrible parent to watch Cobra Kai, but <laughs> but it's there's a there's a reprise where it's the first day of school and and that's and they play Cruel Summer as everyone's going in the first day. So actually not on the soundtrack to Karate Kid. They wouldn't sign the paperwork and let and oh, let really? it on the soundtrack. Yeah. So if you have a cassette copy, go check. Go check me on this. But it's it's not on the soundtrack. There is a really awesome bedtime story for this though, from the video, which I I found out when I was on that other podcast. Do you remember this video at all? It's the, like a the, weird take on the Dukes of Hazard. Which one? The Cruel, the cruel, cruel Summer? Summer video, yeah. I, so I, I guess not. They actually shot it in New York, right? And it's blistering summer heat. And in some scenes, the band, like the energy doesn't match. There's scenes where the band is very drained and then there's other scenes where they seem super high energy and it's sort of weird. So the story is, When they were shooting this on the streets of New York, they set up headquarters at this tavern under the Brooklyn Bridge, and they come back to the tavern tavern in the middle of the day for lunch, and they're complaining about how hot it is, and there's these guys that are just working on the dock, right? So just dudes, and this is an all-girl band, Bananarama, and, you know, good-looking all-girl band. It's the 80s, and these guys on the dock are like, oh, are you, your energy's flagging? And they're like, yeah, and they're like, oh, come to the bathroom. So all those scenes where they have a bunch of energy, yeah, they're on cocaine. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> so why the hell am I bringing up Banana Rama and Samantha Fox? Do you have any idea why why these two are important to this story? Uh, because they're darlings. I don't know. No. Why? So uh, they are darlings, but they also they share something with with Rick Astley, which is a production team. So, is it? Is, wait, can I guess? Yeah, go for it. Is it? Is it Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis? Uh, no, no. So it's Stock, Aitken, Waterman, or as they oh. like to call themselves, Saw S A W. Oh, I have no idea what this is. So I didn't know about this either. This is a whole freaking thing. It's sort of British, and that's why I think we don't know it off the top of our heads. Mike Stock, Matt Aitken, Pete Waterman considered one of the most successful songwriting and producing partnerships of all time. They have scored more than 100 UK Top 40 hits. Your body next to mine. 40 million records. They've earned $104 million. They are the guys that literally, this is not an exaggeration, they literally invented Eurobeat music. So their influence is huge. Four number one hits with Kylie Minogue. They're the guys responsible for You Spin Me Round Like a Record by Dead or Alive. That's them. 85. They work wow. with Debbie Harry, Donna Summer, Edwin Starr, LaToya, Jackson, Laura Branigan. There is a bizarre story where they actually recorded two songs with Judas Priest. But way later in 1993, wow. and I realize I'm risking derailing this whole thing by bringing this up, Mark, but it would be disingenuous, disingenuous, man, disingenuous for me not to mention that Saw, Stock, Aitken and Waterman, two well, two of the three were involved with 
WrestleMania, the album, in 1993. <laughs> the first one? <laughs> I think it might technically be the third one. It, it, it's the one with the Slam Jam. Do you know that yeah. one? No, but I got to look this up. Do, do you know who the A&R executive is on that? So no. Stock and Waterman oversee the project as producers and co-composers. They write these freaking songs. And Simon Cowell is the executive producer. Oh, well, that makes so much sense. Slam Jam I- was certified silver by the British uh, phonographic industry, as they called themselves, in the UK, and reached number four on the charts in December of 1992. I don't know... I, I'm going to say I don't know about this record from 92, but I, I do know that um, when Hulkamania was running wild <laughs> and he he beat, the, he beat the Iron Sheik and then they put out a record, I had the, I think I had the cassette. I mean, yeah, you did. Uh, and my, my equivalent was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coming out of our shell tour cassette, which I can still sing songs from that. And it is definitely on Spotify and I've definitely listened to it in the last year. So say what you want about me, but I'm loyal. I'm loyal to the artists that formed me. Uh, but years before WrestleMania is happening for these guys, uh, Pete Waterman's in a club watching Rick Astley's band and he hears the potential. So he convinces him to come do work with him and his partners. And, and at first, I think they sort of like set him up in this like weird apprenticeship thing. But pretty quickly, they put him on a duet, and it doesn't do a whole lot. And then he puts out this solo single. And the first solo single he puts out is Never Gonna Give You Up. And it's almost an immediate success. Five weeks at the top of the British charts, becomes 1987's highest-selling single, and ends up charting in 24 different countries. Not just charting, topping the charts in 24 different countries. But you know what happens when something is that successful that quickly, right? Yeah, your career is, everything is stocked against, are you going to do something better than that? Just massive backlash. So Saw becomes hugely successful, but they're known for sugary pop. And at this point, as I've already pointed out with Banana Rim and Samantha Fox, they're mostly known for female artists who are, I mean, it's the 80s. I'm just going to speak freely. They're sort of perceived as being eye candy, right? It's not really about the talent. It's sort of like this whole package of here's this danceable song and here's good looking women and it's misogynistic bullshit. But it's that's sort of what it is, right? Or That's the perception. Did, I mean, did I agree that? And admit that I had a huge Samantha Fox poster on my wall. I mean, that was part of the merchandising, right? Like, yeah, that was the whole point. So there's this amazing I was 13 also. Like it was unavoidable. <laughs> it was like, good lord. Uh, there is this amazing time capsule of an article from the LA Times archive, which I highly recommend. The LA Times has some great stuff in that archive. February 1988, written by this guy named Dennis Hunt. Now, Never Gonna Give You Up comes out in August of 87. So this is February of 88. Do the math. It's six months. Dennis Hunt is talking to Rick Astley. And he's not backstage before the lights go down. He's talking to Rick Astley on a promotional tour. Notice my verbiage. Not a concert tour. Rick is literally just going around doing interviews, but not performing. So all of these individual factors are adding up to make anyone in the musical know pretty skeptical of this weird-looking 21-year-old. You have, let's count it, you have a production team basically known for manufacturing hits for, for good-looking people, though. It, I mean, all due respect to Rick Astley, doesn't really fall into that good-looking person category. You have an artist, Rick, who is going on tour to promote himself and his hit single without performing them, and then these rumors start to circulate about his voice. So let's talk about his voice. You you mentioned it earlier. It's shocking once you see a picture of him because you're like, wait, that voice is coming out of that guy? Tell me about the first time you that, that happened, that cognitive dissonance made itself known to you. I, it was when someone else mentioned it to me, really, Brian. I, I, I probably saw the video Um you know, but but I do remember being in a conversation with someone. It was so I was thirteen, um, and someone saying that, um, you know, and it might have been someone that was black that was telling me that too. So there was that thing that he didn't sound like 
what you know they thought that he sounded like he was a black singer so but it, i but i but i don't know like i i i never had that disassociation of of any of that because of probably just the hours and hours of television my parents let me watch <laughs> so at this point in 88 in this la times piece it's out in the open like he just mentions it sort of almost in passing the writer does that there is proof that Saw used some production techniques on Rick's vocals. Quote, the producers used a double tracking technique that's employed to make weak voices sound muscular. Now, yeah, that, that's so, it's okay. I, everybody double tracks their vocals. They lodged this complaint at Rick in this interview. I, I, I don't know who, uh, Dennis Hunt is, but I definitely picture him in reading all of this as Trent Krim, the independent. Like, <laughs> okay, can I? Okay, can I say I need to stop and and derail for a moment? That's that's who I want to be for Halloween. Yes, you should totally. That's a really good idea. That you I could totally want, pull that off too. I just want to say that over and over again. Just Trent Krim, the independent. Trent Krim, independent. So would you say that you have any Reese's peanut butter eggs because they're better than the regular cups and I'd like to have them if you'd hand them over now. Uh, so this guy just sort of comes at Rick, man. And I, I got to say, the, it, the, it is in the show notes, the article, and it's really good. Like, you need to read it. But also, Dennis Hunt's sort of an ass. Um, so Rick like is like, dude. I have a strong voice. I have a good range. This is actually a quote. That double tracking is a production technique, and these producers use that all the time. I didn't always agree with them using it, but it doesn't have anything to do with beefing up my voice. People who think that are wrong. So, I mean, Rick is coming at him, right, in this in this piece. So this is basically, like, I had to set all this up because this is sort of where Rick Astley starts his career from, on the defensive. He comes out of nowhere, basic, um, basically immediately finds himself defending himself to music snobs. But meanwhile, like every average British dude knows every word, but he has no cred. And it's like this party game conundrum that I'm sure you and I have played together. Would you rather, would you rather be respected by the creatives and the critics and live in obscurity or have the general public know every word of your song, but the musical elite think you're a joke. Do, do you have a, a way you would lean here? Which one would you prefer? I don't know. I, I do remember at one point about 20 years ago where we were sitting around in practice in my band and it was like, okay, at this point at the bridge, this is where I'm going to get everyone to go. Hey, Hey, Hey <laughs> with me. And I was like, all right, so we're doing this. <laughs> so, you know, it's the, it's you know if you think about it like there's there's huge bands that have been playing the same act for for years you just kind of have to decide whether you're going to embrace doing the gig or not yeah oh absolutely and this is what i've always said people ask me who is who is the favorite rock star that you've ever met or hung out with brett uh brett michaels hands down because he is very, very securely in control of the narrative on who he is and, and what he does. And he doesn't care that you don't think he's uh, Eddie Van Halen. He's he's making money. He's hanging out with women. He's good. He, he doesn't need your approval. And you can tell. And it makes him incredibly cool. Um, but just to add a layer on how disrespected Rick becomes pop culturally, like I don't think we've really tapped into it yet, okay? We have to do a really quick history lesson that's going to feel like whiplash. But hang on. Put on your history hat. What do you know about Manuel Noriega? I know, I know. I, it's a weird left turn. He ruled Panama from 83 to 90. And for quite a while, he was a U.S. ally. First, he was an informant for the CIA, and then he helped the anti-communist efforts. But Noriega also hung out with other folks. Like, he had, like, party pals, and one of his party pals was Pablo Escobar. So the U.S. couldn't really, like, abide very long. So by the end of 89... Noriega had been accused of drug trafficking actually in the U.S. And things were not going well in Panama. Everyone was pissed off. It was getting repressive, his regime was. And so the U.S. invades Panama. And when this happens, you do Noriega did what you always do, which is you run to the Vatican's embassy and you lock yourself in. 
And so speak for, your, speak for yourself. <laughs> I go to the I go to the next TGI Fridays. <laughs> Bring like, me all the loaded potato skins. What do you What do you got here? Wafers, <laughs> wine, snooze fest. Anyway, so keep going. <laughs> so, so so this happens. He goes to the Vatican's embassy, and American <laughs> troops can't just barge in, right? There's like, you know, there's there's rules. They can't go in and just march him out. So they have to get him to come out on his own. Sort of like a vampire, right? You gotta be invited in or whatever. So they decide that their tactic is to annoy the shit out of this guy. So this is a hundred percent true. They get some good sound equipment and they turn on a military radio station. And they blast it at the window. And then they start calling the radio station. And they're like, here's the songs we need you to play over and over. And yes, Mark, one of the songs that they looped to drive Noriega Loco was Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. Wow. He's so disrespected that the U.S. government is essentially torturing troublemaker world leaders with his musical output. This is 89, so it's not old. I mean, it's just a couple years. Huge success and no respect. This continues to dog Rick constantly and define his career. And it should be clear. And you said it, and I read stuff that said it. They use the term one-hit wonder with Rick Astley. He is not a one-hit wonder. He actually grows more popular. He's selling tons of records. He's even starting to write his own songs. In 89, he was nominated for a Grammy for Best New Artist. Do you know who he lost to? 89? Really, Vanilli? Oh, close. No, Tracy Chapman. Oh, wow. By the way, for me, never a one-hit wonder because he always said, together forever. <laughs> like, see? That's not a one-hit okay, wonder. It's that's not, a, that's it's, another one. It's not one. It's not two. There are five singles, all successful to, to some degree, off the first album alone. What? Yes. And now you got to remember, some of them are more popular in Britain than they are in America, but but yeah, yeah, no, he has a bunch. And his relationship with the press continues to be terrible. There becomes this common refrain of calling him a a puppet for Stock Aitken and Waterman. They basically say, like, this dude is just a guy they're putting in front of the mic like they put Samantha in front of the mic, right? So there's this weird sort of, like, misogynistic thing with him just because he's associated with Saw. In December of 89, ask, okay, so just think about this. He... This breaks in 87, August of 87. He doesn't go on tour to support it until December of 89. God, that's so weird. It's so weird. And by the end of and this is why people are skeptical of him. By the end of it, he's so tired of sitting in dressing rooms trying to convince snobby music writers that he's a legit artist that he breaks away from Saw. He tells those guys, I don't need you anymore. I'm going to find another way out of this and so he gets into a deal with rca records and rca records buys out his contract oh it's interesting i can't believe where it was saw were they part of his management too is that the reason he didn't tour they might have been because that's not entirely clear but he did sign this deal from the very beginning with waterman and so i do think that they were somehow attached to the contract. And so to sum up, for the next three years, the guy basically tries to recast himself as a soul singer. He grows his hair out. He stops doing dance pop. He does duets with Elton John and anybody you know like that that has a lot of cred that will have him. He has one more major success in 91 with a ballad called Cry for Help. Number seven hit in both the UK and the US. You don't remember it. No. And when he puts out his next record in 93, he, he actually, before it comes out, says he's done. So he retires from music in 93. He is 27 years old. Wow. 87 to 93, Mark. He had a five-year career, and he tapped out. That's how bad he was dogged by the press. He just He just was like, nah, I'm not going to do it. So... There is a little bit, before we get to where we're headed, which we all know what that is, uh, in 2000, he does end up taking a publishing deal with Polydor 
he kind of gets back into the music industry. There is an album. He does perform. But, like, it's nothing like it used to be, right? At this point, he's like that kid from the 80s who had that big starburst of a career and then disappeared. He actually had had a kid uh, in the early 90s, and so he decides, okay, I'm going to tap out at 27 and raise this kid. And so he spends 10 years just basically, I think, probably living off the royalties. And then he sort of he, he, he gets back in the water, but he's never going to have the sort of massive pop culture resonance again, and I think he knows that. Or, or he thinks he knows that. But some anonymous kid in his bedroom makes a key decision that leads to one of the most well-known internet phenomenons of all time, and it's all wrapped up with Rick Astley. What's your experience with 4chan? After the Boston bombing, that was the first time I ever looked on 4chan for anything. And then because of that entire incident, I never looked at 4chan ever again. So I had a I had a weird thing with 4chan too, which I won't go into great detail, but when I was working in radio, and we must not have been working together at this point, we had a guy, a personality, who put a picture up on one of the station social media sites or on the website. I don't remember what it was, but it was like a girl holding a sign about, I didn't do the laundry or something. Like she got in trouble with her mom. And and I think it was actually a local girl. But long story short, 4chan got a hold of it and started taking away what was on the sign, like with Photoshop, and making it say really, really terrible things with this like teenage girl holding it. Oh my god. And it went super viral and we were getting calls about from from the family and from the mother. There was like, "Hey, you got to help us get rid of this." And it was a whole thing. So that was like my main the main thing I know about 4chan is, "Oh, that was a real stressful couple of days at work." That that sounds awful. Wow. Yeah, it was it was not good. Uh but the history of 4chan is really its own podcast series for somebody else to tackle. Like I'm sure it's out there. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it here, but I, I will explain it enough to say that it's a website started in 2003 by a 15-year-old kid who stayed anonymous for a long time and called himself Moot. And you could anonymously post images and then sort of like build on it, right? So you post something and then I do something to it and then I put it back up. And then as soon as people start commenting or interacting with the things, they, they start to build clout. And so then the one that gets the most interaction is at the top. This concept eventually spins out of control. And you can get lost just in the Wikipedia entry about 4chan, let alone the actual website. All the stuff that they've unleashed on the world, most of it sort of dystopian and horrifying. But we're going to the early days to an image that is actually pretty harmless. Let's talk about a duck with wheels. Have you ever seen this image? I don't think so. This is the precursor to where we're headed. Before Rick rolling, there was duck rolling. And it explains how the concept, how Rick rolling got its name. But to explain the evolution, I'm going to call in the assistance. I'm going to call in assistance from Moot himself because and this is the founder of 4chan. He's not he's not with 4chan anymore. He left in 2015. In this interview, from 2011 with TechCrunch. He actually explains duck rolling and how it transitions into Rick rolling in like a minute and a half. Yeah, so, so Rick roll kind of as we know it, was, you know, the product of that was this bait and switch where you get linked to a video of uh, Rick Astley performing Never Gonna Give You Up. Um, but the evolution of that is, you know, it started out as a, as a word filter on 4chan where we, we took a, you know, a term and, and kind of flipped it when people would post it. And so people used to post, um, I believe it was egg roll, and at one point, we filtered egg to duck, kind of like, you know, like chicken in the so egg. So every time you typed egg roll, it would just become duck roll? Exactly. And so people then started posting this picture of a, of a duck uh, with, with wheels on it, with like little wooden wheels. <laughs> and they would, they would say like, hey, like check this post out. And, they, and there's a way of kind of like linking in between posts on 4chan. You would click it and you would just get this image of a, of a duck that said duck roll. And it's like, like what, the, you know, what the heck? Um, and so eventually, somebody put that on YouTube, just a static image of a duck with wheels on YouTube, not even a video. And, you know, hey, check out this, you know, here's the video you want, and again, you get this duck. And eventually, you know, after that, it, it becomes, people started to link to, you know, Rick Astley never going to give you up. Why, why that song? I have no idea. You'd have to ask the guy <laughs> who did that. But, you know, the, the, you know, the kind of the bait and switch is obviously, you know, yeah. as, old as, as old as time. Um, 
And you know that started out as this uh, this this uh, there's there's this idea of copy pasta on fortune where you kind of copy paste the same the same text the same phrases and and one really popular one uh, was this this meme Bel Air where um, people would start out and write these really elaborate stories and then they would end with the uh, the ending of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air theme song where they'd be like you know your movie and then you know my mom got or they would really work it like creatively into the whole story where they would mention West Philadelphia and like you know auntie and uncle so every and story had it would end with, yeah it would end with you know the Fresh Prince of Bel Air and it's kind of like this evolution of like you know we have copypasta we have Bel Air and then you know we have egg roll we have duck roll and then we have rick roll um, and it's just it's just like the, you know tracing the genesis of of that meme back is you know something that's really hard on fortune actually because again it's everything's ephemeral everything kind of rolls yeah. off we have sites like Know Your Meme that try to catalog this history. So, can, can you think of a one really good time that you were rickrolled? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. Well, that has me excited. That reaction yeah. is not what I anticipated. <laughs> Tell me, was it porn? Were you looking at porn and you got rickrolled? What was it? No, no, but but there was something that I was sent. That was, it wasn't like super inappropriate, but I remember it was something that was like mildly inappropriate. And, um, and I opened it and, and that happened and, and I was set up by like everyone who was sitting <laughs> all around. So every, so everyone that's sitting all around knew that it was happening. Uh... That's the best. And the best is when they would be like, hey, make sure your speakers are up so you can hear what's going to happen in this video. And so they just immediately, boom, the uh, the production of Stuck, Aitken, and Waterman is booming through the uh, entire space. So I'm still old, dude. I remember when they had the thing where people would click on this and, and it would have you to turn your speakers up and go, hey, everybody, I'm looking at porno. <laughs> 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 it was a real thing. It was a real thing that people that someone did to, to freak everybody out to get someone fired. I mean, <laughs> so one of the moments gives the Rick roll real legs actually happens in March of 07. Uh, the first trailer of Grand Theft Auto 4 is released and viewership is so high that it crashes Rockstar Games' website. So people start posting it in other places and one 4chan user posts, hey, come see this trailer, but points the link to never going to give you up. And almost immediately, this practice like overtakes duck rolling. So duck rolling gets sort of pushed aside. And I mean... A picture of a duck with wheels is funny, but it doesn't completely resonate with the idea of guilty pleasure and simultaneous appeal and disgust like this video does, right? You get a much more visceral reaction with Rick than you do with a duck. The duck's just sort of uh, WTF, like, that's funny, but yeah, I don't even understand why. The bait and switch to never going to give you up is going great in March, and that means that it's ready to rock for April Fool's Day. And so that's sort of when it goes nuts. Because everyone now has an excuse to prank other people, like you got pranked. And so now, message boards and conversation bubbles across the internet, like Fark and Dig, they all start getting in on the fun. So, Moot and 4chan get the credit for Rickroll in most places you look. But there is an unanswered question. And and Moot even, I mean, he can't answer it in that interview we just heard, right? Why Rick Astley? Why never going to give you up? Who made the decision to use that song? So there is a guy who would like to take credit, though it's a little hard to tie him back to the larger phenomenon. But it's this guy named Eric Helwig, and he says that he started using Rick Astley to mess with people via a local radio station call-in show as early as 2006. Not. You're on the post-game show. Yeah. Busting some jams out. You're on the post game show. Post game show. Hello. People hanging up on me. 99673. So that's actually from 2006. But this and guy claims he was doing that just to mess with these guys that did this post game show. They ran out of stuff to do, and they're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to play Rick Astley. And he says that, you know, when asked why Rick Astley, 
because he genuinely likes the song. He's like, I just think it's a good song. I thought it would be a funny thing to play. Yeah, it's it's more fun than like playing pranks on like the the tradio, like the old people that have the Saturday morning shows. <laughs> tradio. It's it. <laughs> radio. There's so many people that don't know what tradio is, but wow, I do. Oh my god, we can't go down that wormhole. But tradio is a is a treasure, and I'm sure you can find remnants of it on the internet. Yeah. All right. Make sure and listen. Brian for twenty dollars has a cornhole set. It's like Facebook Marketplace, but narrated. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, oh man. So the other potential source of song selection uh, is sometimes pointed towards. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Apparently, there's a 2005 episode, and I, I put this link in the show notes if you want to watch it, where the song's used for laughs. It's not really used in a Rick Rolling sense, but one of them is listening to it in the background. And they're like, what are you listening to? And uh, he's like, oh, I'm just listening to Rick Astley. And so it sort of becomes in the lexicon there. But regardless of the exact where and why, the internet sets this thing on fire. And starting really in like 2008, the Rick Roll becomes this household terminology. We could spend hours just diving into all the different ways, big and small, that the silliness is manifested. But for our purposes, I, I think it's actually more important to circle back on the artist, right? So how did Rick Astley respond? He seems to feel a little weird about it at first. Like, clearly, he's like kind of being mocked, right? At least to a certain degree. And this has been a struggle for him, right? Since the very beginning. The thing that literally pushed him out of the music industry was this lack of respect. But I think what we see pretty quickly... And I, I'm interested, I mean, you're older than I am, but I think we can agree that as you age, your perspective changes on some of these things like respect, right? <laughs> and I, I really do think that we have an older, wiser Rick Astley in, in 2007, 2008, who understands the concept of having money. <laughs> right, right. Who, who at this point is like, yep, I'm going to... Yep, uh-huh. I'll take it. Sure. So you see him start to get involved. Like he acknowledges it in an interview in March uh, of 2008. And on April 1st, 2008, YouTube actually pushes this whole thing to the next level. I, do you remember this? They redirected all of their front page video traffic to Rick Astley videos. They rickrolled oh. the entire world. I didn't know that. That's really amazing. And then it like really gets kicked into hyper gear when a video gets edited together where Barack Obama is cut into the video. And he's promising to never give you up or let you down during the election cycle of 08. Oh, yep. Okay. That makes sense. And then November 2008, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Rick Rickrolls the world by showing up on a float that was like, and I think this footage is in the show notes too. I, I'm not going to play it, but it, it's funny to watch because it's like a fake Sesame Street. And it's like people singing and kids songs and stuff. And then all of a sudden it just like record scratches and he comes out from behind the float. And sings, never going to give you up. I'm sorry. Lip syncs, never going to give you up. Which I, I'm a little convinced that he never publicly really sang the song. Because if you watch footage, and there is there is some good old school footage from the, like 87, 88 when he was performing this on television. And you know, it's pretty standard practice to lip sync back in the day. And they didn't even really try to hide it. So I don't know how much he's had to publicly perform it. But I think by the time he gets to the Foo Fighters performance, that is clearly him. Um, and, and in 2009, Time Magazine convinces Rick to write the accompanying commentary when they name Moot, our buddy from 4chan who explained duck rolling to us earlier, among their 100 most influential people. So wow, Rick cool Astley is, is writing the piece about Moot. Here it is. Back in the 80s, I was known for being reclusive, often shying away from media attention. It's perhaps ironic that the internet phenomenon of rickrolling should bring my video for never going to give you up to a new generation. But that's one of the great things about the internet. Young people now have easy access to material that they ordinarily would not have been exposed to. Before I heard about Moot, the mysterious now 21-year-old creator of the influential web message board 4chan, who just happened to win Time.com's online poll to determine the world's most influential people. I used to think some young kid had stumbled across my video and thought it would be funny to send it to his mates, and it just kind of caught on. I suppose at first I was a little embarrassed by it. I always like it when 
people look through, I, I always liken it to when people look through their photo albums or home videos from 20 years ago and think, gosh, did I really wear that? The difference is, thankfully on the one hand, and perhaps a bit scarily on the other, mine are out there for the public to see whenever they want. And that's that's really it. Rick Rowling's still around. It still continues. Here's here's just a few highlights of the last five or six years, and you've already mentioned a lot of them. In 2015, Apple Rickrolled Apple Watch users by placing the lyrics on its support page. <laughs> that's a pretty good one. 2017, Foo Fighters Rickrolled an audience in London when they brought him out. Uh, and as you also already said, the TV show that shall not be named played uh, the song quite a bit and it played a big part in a particular episode very, very recently. And while Astley has said he was, quote, done talking about Rickrolling years ago, he is still asked about it on a regular basis and I kind of think he's never going to escape the meme that led to a career revival. And and I think, I think that he still has some type of... Um baggage from it because real recently he got together where he was going to go out on tour and play Smith songs. And, and Johnny Marr um, was pretty like upfront about how he wasn't cool about it. And it was like, what, you know, like what the hell do you have permission to tell anybody that they can't run around and play your songs? I mean, that's sort of a really interesting comparison too, because when you look at Morrissey, and you look at Rick Astley, I mean, they're not that far apart, right? Like, kind of. Well, well, Rick, well, Rick Astley still can. I mean, I, I Morrissey still sounds pretty okay, but he can't hit all of the notes that he could before. But Rick Astley can still hit all of the notes. <sighs> Man. What a trip! If you want to get involved in the show, if you've got a Rick Rolling story uh, that we need to hear, anything you just want to chat. Send us a note. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You can check out everything we have going on at wearethestoryguys.com. And I, I just hesitate to even set you up for this, Mark, but what do people need to keep doing until next time? Never give me up. <laughs> Never let me down. <laughs> now Never it just sounds around. obligatory. Come on, put some heart into it. And... Tell some stories. Here's the animal in me. You've just been Rickrolled. <laughs>